we can and we will deal with climate change. It's not only a crisis, it's an enormous opportunity. Let's look at the role of climate change in recent DNC acceptance speeches. This is Acclimated. Welcome back. We're off to a good start here. This is the second episode, and I'm already off schedule. I said uh, last time around that this episode was going to be getting into some of the uh, history of fossil fuels, that sort of thing. That's not what we're doing today. <laughs> um, basically, while I was working on that, ep that episode, uh, I forgot when the Democratic National Convention was happening. Um, so I'm still working on that fossil fuels episode. The release date is... But I wanted to discuss the DNC for a bit just to get a sense of where things currently stand in terms of climate politics before diving into some of the history on the next show. Uh, I'm hoping this will be a short episode. Short intro music for a short episode, that's sort of the idea. I guess we'll see what happens. Um, as a side note, I don't plan to do one of these for the uh, Republican National Convention. just doesn't really seem like a good use of anyone's time. You know, I, I understand that it's important to combat climate denialism and disinformation and all that when you encounter it, but that seems different from, like, voluntarily engaging with that sort of thing to produce content or whatever. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm open to a discussion on all of that. This is also not going to go any earlier than 2008. Um, John Kerry doesn't really mention climate change much in his uh, 2004 nomination speech. And before that, we get into, like, Al Gore, and that's, there's a whole bunch of material I've been reading up on for a, for a longer piece about um, the climate politics of like the, the 90s and the early 2000s that I'm, I'm hoping to have out this fall. So we'll start by listening back to Obama's DNC speeches. We'll start with the uh, 2008 one. Interestingly enough, Obama devotes more time to climate change and renewable energy than Clinton or Biden does, despite these issues becoming like, more urgent as the years go by. I think his 2008 speech actually might have the most on this topic than any of these speeches we're going to look at. It's still not a whole lot, but it does get kind of an extended little portion. I will build new partnerships to defeat the threats of the 21st century. Terrorism and nuclear proliferation, poverty and genocide, climate change and disease. And I will restore our moral standing so that America is once again that last best hope for all who are called to the cause of freedom, who long for lives of peace and who yearn for a better future. So this is a big patriotic push, right? It's not really about climate change in and of itself. It's sort of bundled together with perceived threats to U.S. security, stability, um, terrorism comes up. It's brought in together with all of those other topics. And then it kind of swells into this big statement of U.S. greatness on the world stage. So the focus here really isn't actually on climate change. Let's keep listening. And for the sake of our economy, our security, and the future of our planet, I will set a clear goal as president. In 10 years, we will finally end our dependence on oil from the Middle East. Washington's been talking about our oil addiction for the last 30 years. And by the way, John McCain's been there for 26 of them. And in that time, he has said no to higher fuel efficiency standards for cars, no to investment in renewable energy. No to renewable fuels. And today we import triple the amount of oil than we had on the day that Senator McCain took office. 
Now is the time to end this addiction and to understand that drilling is a stopgap measure, not a long-term solution, not even close. As President, I will tap our natural gas reserves. Invest in clean coal technology. Yikes, clean coal. I don't know about all that. And find ways to safely harness nuclear power. I'll help our auto companies retool so that the fuel-efficient cars of the future are built right here in America. And I'll invest $150 billion over the next decade in affordable, renewable sources of energy, wind power and solar power, and the next generation of biofuels, an investment that will lead to new industries and 5 million new jobs that pay well and can't be outsourced. All right, so I, I hear two main themes here. The first is the idea that climate change is really about economic opportunity, which we heard Biden say during the intro to this episode. Um, so that's an idea that's central to most of the messaging on this topic from Democrats. It's a key component of proposals like the Green New Deal as well. Um, and then the other theme is expanding on this notion that climate change is really about uh, threats to national security. Uh, in this case, because being reliant on foreign oil puts the U.S. at a strategic disadvantage somehow. Uh, energy independence is the term that's usually used for this kind of thing. It's been a major part of both Democrat and Republican messaging for years. It gets rolled into these discussions about renewable energy a lot. It's, it's not really what it's actually about as a concept. It's really just an imports versus exports thing, often in terms of like oil. And so Obama's claim about ending dependence on foreign oil might sound like a really bold claim, like it's uh, about really bold action on climate change. Let's skip ahead to 2012 and see how he addresses that claim after four years in office. You can choose the path where we control more of our own energy. After 30 years of inaction, we raised fuel standards so that by the middle of the next decade, cars and trucks will go twice as far on a gallon of gas. We have doubled our use of renewable energy, and thousands of Americans have jobs today building wind turbines and long-lasting batteries. In the last year alone, we cut oil imports by one million barrels a day, more than any administration in recent history. And today, the United States of America is less dependent on foreign oil than at any time in the last two decades. This stuff about oil imports is all true, uh, but I'm gonna argue that the context here is kind of misleading. Part of the reason why oil imports dropped during Obama's first term was due to uh, just general demand decrease because of the, uh, the Great Recession. So people were using less oil just in a broader sense. But in terms of energy policy, one of the main reasons that oil imports dropped during Obama's term and have continued to drop since then has to do with the uh, domestic oil boom that began in the mid to late 2000s and then expanded really significantly during his eight years in office. In states like North Dakota and Texas in particular, oil and natural gas production uh, skyrocketed. Fracking drove a whole lot of that new production. Huge booms in these economic sectors uh, in certain regions of the country. And so Obama introduces this reduced import statistic right after discussing investments in renewable energy. And I think by putting these two things so close together in his speech, he's kind of trying to associate them with each other or sort of imply that there's a, a relationship or connection there. But it's really the opposite, right? The U.S. has actually significantly increased its commitment to domestic oil and gas production in the last decade, which just gives these industries much more long-term momentum. The U.S. is currently the top producer of oil on the planet. 
that's not a great position to be in if the goal is a rapid shift to renewables and decarbonization. So to put these ideas side by side, like he does in this speech, feels a little bit disingenuous. After this, he spends a minute or two talking about further investments in green energy, the economic benefits of all of that. He says climate change isn't a hoax, which is something we're about to hear a little bit more about. Uh, this isn't really new material, but it's, it's still much more time than Clinton gives climate change in 2016. Here's the main mention of it in her speech. And I believe in science. <laughs> I believe climate change is real and that we can save our planet while creating millions of good-paying clean energy jobs. So this is a big applause line, you know, the idea of believing in science. It's been uh, sort of like a motto of uh, some Democrats for a while now, and I understand why. I do think it's insufficient in this sort of context where we're talking about like uh, a major presidential candidate in their acceptance speech, kind of their, their biggest platform to date. I, I feel like it really needs to be paired with more substantive discussion of what that response might look like, what the implications of that knowledge are. But I don't know that it's enough to just say that you believe something is true and then not pair that with really uh, robust, aggressive uh, policy action, aggressive communication efforts, particularly because in this case, I mean, it really doesn't occupy a significant part of her speech at all. Later, she mentions the Paris Accord really briefly uh, and mentions clean energy one more time. And then that's actually it, as far as the issue of climate change goes. And Biden's speech from last week doesn't commit too much more time to it. But weirdly enough, I actually think the way that his speech approaches it is a little more savvy from like a, a political communication standpoint, which is not necessarily a good thing. Uh, there's still really not much substance here. I guess the implication is that uh, the policy details are spelled out in the platform, which somebody can go and check out if they're interested. Within the speech, though, Still doesn't spend much time on it at all, really. Comes up three or four times in passing. But the context in which he brings it up makes it seem as though it's a significant part of his platform and campaign. Here's what I mean. And now history has delivered us to one of the most difficult moments America's ever faced. Four, four historic crises, all at the same time. A perfect storm. The worst pandemic in over 100 years, the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, the most compelling call for racial justice since the 60s, and the undeniable realities and just the accelerating threats of climate change. Now, he doesn't mention climate change at all for the next, like, 10 minutes. But the fact that he includes it as one of the four crises facing the country uh, gives the listener the sense that it's going to be an important topic at some point. And when it finally comes up again, it's basically in reference to economic growth, which is, is, is very familiar to us now. We can and we will deal with climate change. It's not only a crisis, it's an enormous opportunity. An opportunity for America to lead the world in clean energy and create millions of new good-paying jobs in the process. So like I said, this is really familiar territory. It calls directly back to Obama's speech in 2008, and then he moves on to other stuff until later he mentions it twice again in quick succession. One of the most powerful voices we hear in the country today is from our young people. They're speaking to the inequity and injustice that has grown up in America. Economic injustice, racial injustice, environmental injustice. I hear their voices. If you listen, you can hear them too. 
he refers to environmental injustice here, which I think is sort of rare for a candidate to do within a big speech like this. I feel like usually it's done maybe on a stump speech or on their website or that sort of thing. In any case, he doesn't expand on it or suggest policy responses. Uh, and then not too long after that, he says this. And where there's existential, th existential threat posed by climate change, the daily fear of being gunned down in school, or the inability to get started in your first job, it will be the work of the next president to restore the promise of America to everyone. Again, you know, there's not a lot happening here, but it has the sense of being really important because he mentions it next to a topic as, as serious and severe school shootings. So this is a different approach to Clinton stylistically. And I think it indicates that the campaign and speechwriters have picked up on some of the language that's now used by progressive organizations, progressive politicians when discussing climate change. Um, whether or not it indicates an actual substantive commitment to dramatic action on climate change is a totally different question. So I think to wrap this up, I want to go back to uh, Obama's 2012 speech. There's a moment in here that feels a little surreal, but I think it captures the tension at the core of all this messaging over the years. So now you have a choice between a strategy that reverses this progress or one that builds on it. We've opened millions of new acres for oil and gas exploration in the last three years, and we'll open more. But unlike my opponent, I will not let oil companies write this country's energy plan or endanger our coastlines or collect another $4 billion in corporate welfare from our taxpayers. We're offering a better path. This is a really strange moment. Democrats here are claiming that it's possible to have uh, an expanding fossil fuel industry that somehow does not further enrich and empower that industry and that it's somehow possible to grow the oil and gas industries without accelerating climate change. The first part of this, the, uh, the idea that an industry can expand without having outsized political influence, I don't think this is true. It's probably not super surprising to hear from a major political party. This is just kind of uh, part of the governing ideology of this uh, political and economic system. It's a claim made of, it's pretty consistent over the years. The second part though, the suggestion that expanding the oil and gas industries can be done without threatening ecosystems and coastlines in the atmosphere, that part feels far more settled. Uh, it isn't possible. Fossil fuel production does environmental damage as soon as the process of exploring for deposits of oil and gas starts, and then the risks to local ecosystems continue at every uh, subsequent step. There are more than enough oil spills and leaking pipelines and burning oil rigs and spoiled water sources to speak to this. But the damage extends far into the future too, of course with the greenhouse gas emissions that result from extraction and then from consumption down the line, all of which obviously uh, contribute to global warming. So this feels almost like a fundamentally impossible proposition. But something like this approach, which tries to sort of hold together these two incompatible things, has been a pillar of the party's approach to climate change policy for a long time. For a whole variety of reasons, I think this is going to be an increasingly difficult position to continue to hold going into the next decade. And we can start to see this with the sort of dance around the issue of fossil fuel subsidies that the Biden campaign was uh, doing this past week, right? It, its platform had language saying that the party uh, wants to end fossil fuel subsidies, then they removed the language, then there was some sort of, you know, some attempts at damage control in the press. Meanwhile, the actual goal should be not just an end to subsidies, but an actual end to exploration and extraction entirely. So it's an increasingly fraught stance that they're taking. Maybe the two main trends we can point to in looking back over these speeches are, uh, well, the first would be a diminishing amount of time the topic actually gets within the speech, which <laughs> that doesn't seem great. <laughs> uh, 
the other trend is uh, the constant tethering of climate change to economic prosperity and national security. And, you know, I'm, I want to be clear, I don't expect the U.S. president to start discussing climate change in really radical terms or, uh, you know, suggest entirely different economic paradigms as a response. That, that doesn't feel very realistic to me. But I do think it's worth thinking about the current messaging, um, where it's been in recent years, what it's accomplishing, maybe the ways in which that messaging has been put in service of some like less than ideal policy proposals and economic initiatives, that sort of stuff. And just sort of start to look at this stuff in context now that uh, it's been around for a while, because hopefully that all sort of help us prepare better for um, analyzing and responding to developments in the future. And that's the hope, at least. <laughs> I, guess, I guess we'll see. But yeah, I think that's it for this episode. Thank you again for listening. Thank you to everybody who listened to the last one and then shared it or reached out or talked with me about it, anything like that. I really appreciate it. I had no idea what to expect when I put the first one out. So uh, yeah, I'm very grateful for everybody who's uh, reached out and listened to it or you know anything like that at all. I'm going to keep working on the next episode. We'll have some updates on it hopefully soon, maybe, to be determined, I suppose. Uh, but uh, yeah, other than that, I will see you next time.